Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A winter weather warning raises renewed fears about spiraling energy costs. Weather forecasters say the spell of icy weather heading our way could last well into next week. A fresh wave of Russian missile strikes targets Ukraine's energy infrastructure, putting more pressure on power in several cities. And later, a Dublin father tells us his surrogacy story and talks about his battle to get his triplet daughters home. I, th- I think the Irish government should change the laws in Ireland so that even just citizens can, can deal with in the country. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Joined first tonight by Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather for more on this winter weather warning. There's a cold snap approaching, Alan. Thanks for joining us tonight. Can you bring us up to date on what we're likely to see this week? Just how bad is it going to get? Yes, we're going to see an extended cold period. Temperatures really dropping back from Wednesday. Still cool tomorrow, but really from Wednesday, that's when the the cold air is really going to start to feel. You're going to feel the bite in in the wind chill. Temperatures are going to drop back to minus four, minus five degrees at nighttime, but they're not really going to get above two, three or four degrees by day. And even when they are three or four degrees by day, it's going to feel like minus two with a wind chill. So ice is going to start to build. There's going to be very little tall, really, for many areas and it's going to stay bitterly cold right through and into the weekend and it looks like into the early days of next week. Some wintry showers possible as well, especially on Wednesday night and Thursday morning coming in from the north and moving down the country. But we could see some more wintry showers later in the week. Just very hard to pinpoint those at this stage. Do we know at this point how long it is likely to last? Because we're hearing about a weather warning being in place right up to Saturday night, but it, it could well go beyond that, couldn't it, Alan? It could indeed. There's a storm out in the Atlantic that is forecast to deepen and move towards us. And there's a lot of uncertainty on the weather models as to what will happen, whether that will try and break through and bring us maybe a respite next week. But a lot of the weather models now show that that storm may well pass to the south of us and we could stay in a very cold air mass right into next week. And really, there is a risk now that this could continue for two weeks. So we would see temperatures staying below normal for two weeks. Uh, and there is some other options which you know are low risk at this stage, but we could see the potential for that storm to track up and meet the cold air and fall as snow as well. So it's really hard to say what exactly is going to be the details around that, but certainly a risk of a very cold spell. So people should be prepared for at least seven to 10 days of cold weather and possibly 14. OK, Alan, thank you for bringing us up to date on that. We appreciate you joining us tonight. Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather. Well, I'm joined now on my panel by Fianna Fáil TD, Neve Smith, Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly, Business Post political correspondent, Daniel Murray, and Wayne Stanley from Simon Communities of Ireland. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. 
Just when we heard Alan O'Reilly speaking there, Wayne, about up to two weeks of really cold weather, temperatures dropping maybe um, as low as minus six or minus seven degrees. And the first thing that many people think about is we are here in a warm studio. People are at home, hopefully in warm houses, but it's those people who are sleeping rough, who are out on our streets that we worry about. Yeah, and when we get to these kind of even minus three, minus four, um, people are really at risk if they're sleeping out and we work very hard to get them in. Now, uh, across the country, uh, all of the local authorities have begun their cold weather strategies where they introduce more beds and, and our outreach teams and outreach teams of other organisations go out and make people aware of them. When we get into this kind of extreme weather, mm-hmm. that capacity is increased again and it's things like camp beds in, you know, what you wouldn't consider in, in normal times really, you know, every option is is used. Because Um, there is this um, line from the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive saying, you know, they have activated um, the cold weather strategy and you'll be working um, within that, um, the the Simon communities. But this, everyone will have a bed, this idea. And I want to put that in the context, I suppose, of the accommodation crisis we're facing now. Does that change things? Um, Does that change the availability of beds? Is there a guarantee there that everyone, in as many people as they can, will will be off the streets once that very cold weather hits? It depends on your definition of a bed. I mean, what we will have is we, we, we'll have the capacity to get everybody in. Um, they'll have some kind of a place where they can put their head. It's, it's not their own space, it's not a room, it's not, you know, it, it's not an acceptable standard, but in the context of a crisis where people's lives are at risk, it, it's what we do and we go out and we make it people aware that it's there and we encourage them to come in and you know when it gets to this extreme if people are unwilling to come in we essentially send stuff out to go out and make sure that they're protected and that they have at, at least the, the standard of, of protection that'll at least keep them safe in a, even in a very risky situation so but the broader crisis is absolutely a concern I mean the reason why we have the moratorium on evictions is because our capacity to bring people, uh, to provide mm-hmm. uh, shelter or uh, emergency accommodation, particularly for families, is absolutely a capacity. So um, in the broader context, it's, it's really, really concerning what we're seeing. In, in the context of rough sleeping, I mean, that is something, as I say, we pull out all the stops and we will... Emergency measures can yeah. be activated, yeah, but that big picture, and actually, I'm always struck by the homeless figures, and we have seen um, this surge in homeless figures, Louise, I think 11,397 people now homeless, 3,480 of them are children, and, and the family homeless figures are rising again, and, and many are uncounted in those figures because they're sleeping, you know, with... with with families, extended family, they they may have a couch to sleep on, but it's not their home. No, and there are at the very minimum 3,800 children who will be anxious and worried um, that Santa Claus We'll be able to find them uh, in emergency accommodation. They're, they're kids who have uh, are being forced to grow up with no stability. And I mean, of course, we welcome the, the winter initiative, but we're back here again every year. And the figure, the homeless figures are rising. And there are thousands who are not counted. Mm-hmm. So there are thousands of children who will be sleeping on a floor or on a mattress this evening. Uh, there are thousands of, of families who don't have anywhere to go and who are outstaying their welcome um, in their own, the accommodation with family where they can find it. So I suppose what we would be saying is like, we keep coming back to the same place. We keep coming back to the same problems. We keep hearing the same tired old excuses from the government. Um, but all of the evidence suggests and proves that their strategy 
the government housing policy, it isn't working. If we had a functioning housing system, mm -hmm. we would not have upwards of 11,000 people, 3,800 of whom are children, going to be sleeping in emergency accommodation, not just tonight, but Christmas. And many of those don't have um, any hope mm -hmm. that they're going to be out of that situation anytime soon. It does become very stark, doesn't it, Neve? when we are heading towards the depths of winter, when we're seeing these plummeting temperatures as well. There are the, the, the rough sleepers who are at the cold face of it, but there are many families as well who are in a very precarious situation right now, especially in the run-up to Christmas, not knowing um, where they're going to live, how long they can have that accommodation that they're in and how secure they are. Absolutely, and um, as Wayne pointed out, the eviction ban, that's why that was brought in uh, in these terrible, I suppose, months that we're facing into a cold weather and we have this cold snap that is facing us. But I suppose all arms of the, of the state are being put in place to try and address with the cold weather strategy um, the extra payments that are being made to people coming up to Christmas the uh, energy crisis, the energy credit rather, um, to try and help families. And I'm, I'm not saying in any way that it solves the problem, mm -hmm. I'm in the full knowledge that it doesn't, but uh, every, I suppose, measure that can be put in place is, is being put in place. Is there confidence there when the government talks about putting that eviction um, ban in place? Because the idea around it is, it, um, look, if you don't get the number, uh, like more accommodation up in that period, then it serves very little purpose, Barb, for the very short term of saving people from going homeless. But if you have a situation where the accommodation isn't there then, coming the lifting of that ban, you're, you're, we're facing into real problems, aren't we, in the new year? Well, Can we, the government give guarantees on that uh, about, about where it's going? Because it was under pressure to impose an eviction ban after all. It didn't come when, I suppose, campaigners were initially looking for it. Um, what I can say is that uh, Minister Darrell O'Brien is trying absolutely everything between giving our local authorities uh, all that they can do. I mean, only this evening I, I hosted a, an online webinar with speakers around the grants that are now being given to try and draw in into the housing market all of the vacant and derelict buildings. And I'm not saying that that is the solution, but again, it's to try and initiate and get schemes like that going and people looking at accommodation that are out in maybe perhaps in the more rural parts mm. across the country. I mean, on that scheme, you can get up to 30,000 for vacant buildings, 50,000 on derelict buildings, and then with the SEI schemes bringing in another 26,000, mm. every opportunity that can be given to people, to local authorities, to organisations, right. to provide homes will be done. All right, OK. Um, and, and the pressure really on that as well, um, Daniel, because all these measures, while welcome, do take time to implement. Um, we're now facing into a very difficult um, winter. And also, this is really, this cold snap is the first real test, I suppose, of people's ability to heat their homes as well, isn't it? Now, we've, also, we've already seen people getting sky-high bills, but the temperatures have been quite moderate up until now. Yeah, in some ways, we've been quite lucky in that we've had an unusually moderate autumn and winter, and that's been the same across all of Europe. And that has definitely affected prices, actually, at a regional level across Europe, helped kind of keep them down slightly. They haven't reached the kind of stratospheric levels that, that some people were, um, were predicting as far back as August, but still very high, obviously. Now we're moving into winter, and those high uh, per energy unit prices are going to be exacerbated by 
high, very high energy usage. So people switching on their heating now, a lot of people for the first time over the last couple of weeks uh, and in this next cold snap over the next two weeks, really having to keep that on quite a lot. And the worry being that these bills are going to start to arrive at the month after and that people may be in crisis when they do. Now, the government has tried to deal with this through uh, the cost of living package that it announced alongside the budget. Many of those lump sum payments, the welfare lump sum payments, have already been paid. Mm -hmm. The electricity credit has already been paid, but these payments are really going to have to kind of prove their worth uh, over the coming weeks and months. Yeah. Um, tell us when what you are seeing in terms of uh, fuel poverty um, this year, the impact of that on people that you're helping. Yeah, I, I, I think we'll... It's a growing concern for us. I think particularly, as you've just outlined in the cold weather, it's going to get tougher and tougher. The moratorium on evictions is there. Really, that meets the challenge of landlords exiting the market. Um, what we do see is people on a low income who are perhaps on a housing assistance payment paying the rent. A lot of them are topping up already. They're now going to be facing into this cost of living crisis, which is yet to hit it's, it's high point and we're looking at that. So we're really concerned that actually people are going to be forced out of their home simply because they can't afford to meet the costs of maintaining their home. We have a five month window, um, as you were outlining earlier, and the government has to use that breathing space that we've seen for some people. It has prevented some people coming into homelessness. There's no question of that, um, but it hasn't created any more capacity. So what will happen is what happened during the moratorium that we saw during COVID, where when that was lifted, homelessness quickly returned is and that, has surpassed. Is that what you're predicting? Yeah. Because that's not... The government are saying we're putting this in place because we are working really hard, we're scrambling now to, I suppose, get get more accommodation, yeah. no, no, provide the, more the, homes. That, that's do, exactly do, do what I'm saying. Do you believe uh, have, that ambition? They do. They have to have that ambition because they have five months. Um, and if they, if they don't, it'll be reflected in the numbers. There's no way to hide from this. Mm -hmm. um, the... the, the you know, the number, of people, the number of people who are entering homelessness uh, will increase once the moratorium is lifted if they haven't put in that infrastructure. It, 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 you know, th there's no way around it. Um, they have given themselves rightly and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, fully support the, the moratorium. Um, it, but it, all it has done is created breathing space, mm -hmm. breathing space for people who are at the, yeah. at the verge of falling into homelessness, but also breathing space for the government to ramp up some of the initiatives. Uh, particularly around vacancy, you know, the, there's a lot of, the, there is capacity there in vacancy, there is dereliction, it takes a bit longer. Um, local authorities do have a certain number of voids. Do you believe can it around. can be done? Do you think it can be done in the space of five months? It's a short window. It is. Uh, in order to keep, I mean, and those homeless figures we're talking about, they're at a record high. So it's yeah. really to prevent them from going, but it's already a record high into another stratosphere. Yeah. Well, the, the, what has happened with the moratorium is hopefully that'll hold us where we are, that we won't cross, hopefully, when you're talking about 11,500 mm. sounds inappropriate, but uh, we're talking about children maybe sleeping on the street. It's where we were if we hadn't brought in the moratorium. That's how serious it was. So the government has five months, and if they don't uh, put in that extra capacity, uh, we, we will see children going to Garda stations because they don't have another space. But we space are also seeing that there's a 700 million euro underspend to date within the Department of Housing. So it's very hard to, to reconcile what, what Neve was saying in terms of every lever is getting pulled when we see that there mm -hmm. is money there that hasn't actually been spent. It's very hard to, to hear that every lever is being pulled when we see the rate that rents are going up. I mean, it now costs on average We did hear from Minister Dara O'Brien on that, on that spend in the, the Housing Department 
and that you will see a glut of it now at the end at the end of the year. That's yeah. when all the big contracts and all of that come through. Um, do, uh, well, do you think forgive like... me, Claire, if I, if I remain unconvinced, um, because as I say, all of the available mm. metrics suggest that this particular minister is failing in his job. And if we look at average rents, we can see what's happening in Dublin. £28,000 for the average rent in Dublin. You know, the increases are off the charts, 14% plus increases right across the state. The figures of homeless people going up, homeless mm. children going up. So I don't know what other measurements they expect us to use. Yeah. And that underspend as we sit here is sitting at €700 million. Euros. So you'll forgive me if uh, I haven't been quite convinced by the Minister's rhetoric because the facts actually contradict what he has been saying. Neve, do you want to respond to well, that? Just to say, Minister Darrell O'Brien has brought in the large largest suite of measures and policies. I mean, there's every policy under the sun that could be thought of. He has introduced it and he has put money behind it. It's the largest housing... housing what about that underspend? Well, Louise has hit the nail on the head. You will see with every local authority and every department, things have been slow mm. uh, and you will always see towards the end of the year a big burst to get money spent and get things delivered. And it's just the nature. It's just the nature. It's not good enough for people out there who are waiting on homes. Yeah, I mean, so people will look and say, why the big burst? Schemes? Why? It's a perceived, I guess, a lack of urgency or the fact that we have reached this record level of homelessness. Look, I want to talk about the, the fuel allowance and the eligibility being widened. Um, but that's not coming in. I know it's being announced by Heather Humphreys tomorrow. It's not actually coming in till January. Is that right for the number of people who can now claim um, the fuel allowance? Well, it's an additional 80,000 people who will be able to uh, claim the fuel allowance. Uh, also, over 70s now uh, will be means tested, of course, and it's 500 for a single person and 1,000 for uh, mm. a couple. Um, and I think all of these measures do make a difference, Claire. They really do. I know they're in my constituency office when people are coming in. Uh, tweaks within the system can put people in or out of these bands and they do make a huge difference to people in their, in their income and staying warm. And, and on the energy okay. crisis thing, it is important to say that there's two more tranches of the energy credits coming along in the new year as well. So, I mean, again, there is, it's, as it's keeping it as broad as possible to have as most impact on all family homes. It'll be January... January then that that's really tested as well if that's when we're likely to see that enhanced or increased uh, payment coming in Daniel. It will um, the majority of the payments will have been um, paid by the time we get to January but there will still be the uh, the fuel allowance being extended and to people thinking, and there will be when the we're two... talking about this cold weather now like that's January that people have to wait it's a further month It's anyway. January people have to wait uh, and then also the two electricity credits that come in there they are electricity credits and we're talking about uh, you know moving into basically a heating crisis now which is mostly gas oil and solid fuels mm -hmm. in Ireland and that'll really be much more targeted measures through the welfare payments that, that were paid out so I think you know some people will certainly be concerned as they face into that weather Okay uh, well meanwhile in Ukraine a fresh wave of Russian missile strikes has targeted Ukraine's energy infrastructure plunging several places into darkness. Earlier I spoke to news correspondent Sarah Coates in Ukraine about the latest attacks there. Yes, look, we've been here on the ground for around five days being warned of an imminent attack by Russia here in Ukraine. It was just around lunchtime that we all ran down to shelter. This was right across the country, air raid sirens ringing out for around three or four hours. Now, this first barrage of missiles which came from the sea and also from the air was really designed to take out Ukraine's uh, aerial sort of uh, infrastructure there and uh, aerial sort of infrastructure and stop uh, 
stop these, uh, ro which normally stops these rockets from coming in. Now, this second barrage of rockets, uh, which struck right across the country, it was designed, as you mentioned, to take out these power grids. We've seen this tactic now by the Kremlin for the last few weeks, really trying to target this civilian infrastructure. Word just in just a few moments ago that Kiev right now, where we are, uh, they're working around the clock to try and bring this electricity back. But as you can see now, it is absolutely freezing here. We're even having trouble with our camera equipment due to this absolutely arctic temperatures. Uh, there are many people right now living uh, with absolutely no power, no heating, and it's only going to get worse. Uh, people have actually been dying and been taken to hospital simply by using generators and lighting fires in their homes to try and stay warm. Now, we'll take you down to the southeast of the country, uh, down to Zaporizhia. We do know that two people died there and a number of others were wounded. Uh, and the Ukrainian, Ukraine military has just come out, rather, to say that all up today, four people have died here in total. So uh, we are being also told to stay very close to shelter with another possible barrage of rockets over the next few days. But really, it is a very grim situation here on the ground. And this uh, cold, dark winter that is approaching is set to be extremely harsh and extremely testing for these people. And Sarah, we're hearing about these oil sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. Moscow saying it's not going to impact on the war or their financing of the war. Clearly, the G7 countries uh, think otherwise to, to make this statement and to, 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 to take this course of action. What's the sense there on the ground about the potential impact this will have? Well, look, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, he came out when this was announced, calling it weak. He is, of course, though, thankful for any help from these EU countries, from the G7 and from Australia. Now, Russia, as you mentioned, remains defiant. Uh, his spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, he came out to say that Russia and the Russian economy have the required capacity to fully meet the needs and requirements of what, what it calls a special operation here in Ukraine, adding that the cap will completely destabilise energy markets. Now, as of this morning, crude was up 1.7% to $87 a barrel. But what is very important to point out here is that anyone who tries to buy oil over this $60 uh, cap mark will find it extremely difficult, given that all the infrastructure that's in place, let's talk about the shipping, the insurance, etc. this is all British-owned, this is all European-owned, so they will potentially, most probably, refuse to transport this crude oil if anyone goes above that cap. So if anyone tries to do it, they're going to find it very, very hard. And, uh, you know, it really will be seen over the next few weeks what this cap will do. But at the same time, in saying that, this cap will be in place for around... 10 months, and then it can potentially be lowered, like some of these other states were asking for, like neighbouring Poland here, wanted it to be as low as something like $30 a barrel. Okay, Sarah Coates joining us from Kyiv in Ukraine tonight. Thank you. Thanks for the update. My thanks also to Wayne Stanley of Simon Communities who joined us in studio tonight. Neve, Louise and Daniel are staying on with me. Coming up next, the women living in fear in their own homes. Stay with us.
A new documentary series from Virgin Media Television on the issues of domestic abuse and femicide in Ireland began tonight. The first episode of Until Death told the story of Sonia Blount's murder, murder as her sisters and mother spoke about her life and death. So Claire says, come on, we're going to the hotel. I said, Claire, that's Sonia. And she kept saying, don't say that. And I said, it is Claire. I know it's all. So when we got there, they wouldn't let me see her. And I says, please, just let me see her. Just, just please let me see her. Says, no, and I says to Claire, he done this. I said, he, and Claire goes, who? And I says, Eric Locke done this. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Sonia's mother, Trish, speaking there in Dublin Man, Eric Locke, was found guilty of murdering Sonia Blount at a Tala Hotel in 2014. Well, Fianna Fáil TD, Neve Smith, Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly, Business Post political correspondent Daniel Murray are still here with me. And I'm also joined now by Sarah Benson from Women's Aid. Um, Sarah, to come to you first on this, Sonia's murder, she was just one of hundreds of women whose deaths you've actually... You know, you, you, you've put down, you've said this is this is femicide. And this is the number of people that have been, women specifically in the Irish state that have been killed um, that you've noted in the past 30 years. Yeah, since 1996, we've lost 252 women um, to male violence. And the majority of those, uh, over 50%, were murdered by a current or former partner, 87% uh, by somebody known to them. So uh, the most dangerous place, unfortunately, for women in this country will be their own home. Abuse in all its forms, not just physical, is something that was highlighted, I think, starkly um, in that first programme tonight. Coercive control, 
financial control or economic abuse, you call it, um, uh, isolation. It can take so many forms and they're not all immediately obvious, Sarah. No, I mean, I think domestic abuse, whether it's in a, a short-term relationship, like in, in Sonia's case, that was, a, that was a situation where she had tried very quickly, actually, to end a, a relationship and the, the individual, uh, her murderer, chose not to accept that and to persist. Um, but what we know is that it's a pattern of behaviour and, and people think about physical abuse, but sometimes uh, the first act of physical violence is an act of fatal violence. And that's particularly the case where you have coercive control, which is all around using uh, manipulation, psychological abuse, economic abuse, many small tactics which on their own might not constitute crimes, but taken together have an extraordinarily powerful impact of, of stealing somebody's liberty, uh, reducing their sense of self-esteem, isolating them from family and friends and access to means. You're here tonight and we are talking about it more. We're talking about it more uh, as an issue and it has been thrust into the limelight because of, of many high-profile cases. Has action followed words, um, do you think, Sarah, in this instance? Because we've heard a lot from this government as well about a strategy and what they plan to do. Well, what I will say is in the last three years in particular and in some respects kind of um, COVID-19 was a bit of a catalyst for shining a light on what has been a, a shadow pandemic for many, many decades of, of COVID, of domestic abuse. And in that period, there was a third national domestic sexual and gender-based violence strategy created. Different to the first two, this was very much co-created with the sector, with the specialist uh, domestic and sexual violence services. It's, it's all forms of mm. gender-based violence. And it also has actions under all four of the pillars of what are called the Istanbul Convention. So previously focus might have been on prosecution protection. Now we also have a focus on coordinated policy, which is absolutely crucial at government level, at whole societal level, and prevention as well. And that starts, you know, right in our schools in terms of gender equality, respect this prevention piece so that future generations aren't raised where a certain proportion of men will behave violently towards women. Yeah, so there are many actions there. One of the things you mentioned about the Istanbul um, Convention, refuge places is tied up in that and we're falling well short, aren't we? How are we doing now? Because that was something there was a lot of focus on when Helen McEntee was bringing out this strategy in terms of needing to see action about providing safe spaces for women. Yeah, and listen, we really do welcome the fact that there is a commitment to institute more refuge places. But back to that proposition of coordinated policy, refuge is only one component of a response. It's not for everyone and it can only ever be a temporary response. Mm. What we need is the housing for all strategy to reflect domestic violence as a particular form of homeless and to have mm -hmm. very specific uh, responses around homeless, uh, swift measures to get accommodation in certain circumstances that are very particular to those That's who are surviving happening. domestic violence. No, there's still a siloing there. So mm -hmm. that thing of the coordinated policy, I'd say, is really, really crucial because there's a role for all departments in this, not to create new actions, but to look at the actions, their own national strategies, and see where are you going to address gender-based violence as it shows up. Women Women's homelessness experience different to men's homeless, for example. Um, on that, Neve, there's a lot of still a lot of work, isn't there, for the state to do for the government to look at? Like I'm looking at this, and it's a 363 million euro strategy to tackle domestic, sexual, and gender-based violence. But all of that is well and good. But if you don't have the system or the policy in place in the, in the right areas, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter how much money you're putting in. If you're going to see gaps like that, where, you know you're not looking 
at victims of domestic violence when you're looking at the homeless strategy? Yeah, well, uh, I sit on the Justice Committee, Claire, and I remember like two years ago, um, I was having a briefing from uh, Women's Aid, but also Safe Ireland and Mary McDermott, who featured on your documentary tonight, and her talking at that point about, you know, so many different aspects of this one issue were spread across so many different departments, and that made it so difficult for people like these ladies to try and help and assist women. And I think that has been addressed, and we see now that the Department of Justice has the function and sort of the lead role in all of this. And you did see the rollout of the zero tolerance uh, policy document. Mm -hmm. You saw in a very short space of time too, the Tulsa report, which kind of indicated, and my own constituency be one of those counties that doesn't have a refuge, nine counties within the entire country that doesn't have a refuge. And now and at this what's the situation time, there? Because you'd know what's happening yeah, on the ground. At this moment in time, uh, Safe Ireland are, are, are going to be launching their... Um, policy document, but also more their, their model of what they want to see refuges look like across the country so that you have the wraparound services, that you have the safe homes within the communities, that it isn't just, and as Sarah quite rightly said, these are temporary places for women mm. and families to go to be safe, but we have to look at providing long-term accommodation for them, providing the financial care that they need and also the wraparound service and everything that's been done to deliver that. Um, uh what we're hearing is the ambitions appears to be there, Louise. Um, it, it, what does Sinn Féin make of that? I presume you'd welcome many of the measures they're talking about, including the likes of um, additional leave for um, mm -hmm. victims of domestic violence, that they can take more leave from work when they need to, and those sort of measures to help, I suppose, end the stigma and give people time that they need for yeah, absolutely. support services. Um, I was at a conference very recently organised by the Force of Trade Union. I know this is an issue that Unite have, have also campaigned on, so I would have introduced legislation into the doll myself to provide for 10 days uh, paid leave for victims and survivors of domestic abuse. I know Neve and her colleagues in the previous doll would have introduced very similar legislation. The Green Party introduced 10 days uh, in the North, unfortunately. The government, and we're going to be debating it this week, have somehow managed to take five days out. I don't know how that has happened, but they've cut it in half. So in the colleges and the universities, they're, uh, they're, they're getting 10 days. Um, but unfortunately, the government only feel, see fit to give five. So I will have amendments down this week, and I am really looking for as much support as I can get for those amendments to ensure that the 10 days are there. And I think it's really important that we recognise that domestic abuse and coercive control, they are really important societal issues, but they manifest themselves in different, in different ways, in different areas. And it's a really serious workplace issue because when you are the, the victim and you talk to victims and survivors, they will tell you that very often work represents independence, their own money, financial stability, financial independence. And you know the idea that somebody would have the capacity to mm. take that from someone, I think we need to, to stamp that out. And the way to do it is to facilitate people with time away from work with pay. Yeah, you, Daniel, you would think there would be opportunity there for the government to, while five days is welcome and it's something that we haven't had to date, we've had nothing in fact mm -hmm. um, for victims of, of domestic violence, that it is something but that maybe they could have gone a bit further with that or, or, or to, just to show that look, they want to take this action, they are convicted um, um, to, to doing something about it. Certainly and, and maybe they can be convinced of that over the next while. They've kind of said, set their ambition high now. I, I still remember earlier on in the year after the tragic killing of, of Ashling Murphy uh, being in in the doll and, and the outrage that was pertinent in the, in the doll that day, which really generated the political momentum that has led to this third gender violence strategy. The problem, of course, is that there's been two of these strategies before and they haven't had any demonstrable
ripple effect uh, on the, the rate of, of violence against women in society. So I think the hope is that this time things will be different. Certainly, uh, Justice Minister Helen McEntee mm. um, has taken this brief on and has made it her business of, of delivering on it. I think certainly the political will is there across the whole of the Oireachtas uh, to do so. Uh, so we'll see if they can. Okay, uh, just to let you know, you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines if you've been affected by any of that conversation. Um, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Sarah, Neve, Louise and Daniel are staying on with me. Next, a Dublin couple's surrogacy struggle. Stay with us. Welcome back. A Dublin father whose surrogate triplet daughters were stranded in Kenya for two months has finally arrived home in Ireland with his three babies. Edward O'Reilly and his partner say they were hit with additional costs from an adoption agency when they went to collect their children. Kira Doherty went to hear their story. We, we went to Kenya the first time in October of 21 and um, everything seemed legit. We were taken to a really nice fertility clinic and it was in March, yeah, March this year, we found out that we were pregnant, well, well that the surrogate was pregnant, and it was in March, April, May. It was around the end of May, we found out that it was triplets. And that was, that was a shocker. That was a shocker. But a, a good shock, a good shock. But uh, we, as far as we were concerned, everything was above board. Bring me back to that moment when you arrive in Kenya, you know the three girls have been born, but alarm bells start to ring. We were collected by the agency to go see the babies in hospital. I didn't refuse to pay the money, but at this point I just wanted to go see the babies. That's, that was my only thought in my head. And when I refused to pay the money, he just brought me around for hours trying to force me to pay the money. We asked $1,200 each extra for a birth cert. Now we know in Kenya that's free, it comes free with when, when a baby's born. So that was at nine o'clock in the morning he collected me. It was like two o'clock in the day before I got away from him. He dropped me out on the side of the road with like three suitcases each, all my baby stuff in a city I didn't know, it was in Nairobi. The, we didn't even know where the hospital was. And um, yeah, it was, it was then the alarm bells started ringing in my head that, look, maybe we're in trouble here. What was it like at that moment when you were stuck at that hospital and you didn't know where your girls were. The feeling that we had, we like we're in a city that we don't know. We don't know where our babies are. It was four or five o'clock in the evening before we even found out what hospital they were in. We rang around different hospitals, and we finally found a hospital. And we were told the babies were doing okay. They needed some special baby food and a little oxygen. They're perfect. When we got there, you know, they had shoes out of them everywhere. They were in ICU. It was frightening. It was absolutely frightening. Even, especially Camilla. We didn't think Camilla was going to make it. She was so small, so frail. And um, like Renesme and, and Briella, they, they, they had the oxygen tubes out. But Camilla just looked, I don't know, there was something about her. And look, lucky enough, um, they were in ICU for about four weeks. Camilla was in ICU for about six weeks. But it wasn't for a couple of weeks later that we really realised that we were we were in trouble. And you had paid the agency 50,000 euro at this point, and you were under the impression that would cover everything. All the bills were supposed to be included, the hospital bills, all this. 
we found out none, none of these were paid. The surrogate hadn't been paid her money either. So her bill was on us. Um, the pharmacy bill, doctor's bill, hospital bill, nothing is paid. This was all on us now, you know what I mean, at this point. And the agency were still looking for extra money. But um, it was, there was no extra, there was no extra money. We, we hadn't, we can't take blood from us down and we hadn't got extra money to give this guy, you know what I mean. So yeah. how much in total at that point did you think you needed to raise? We thought 30 at that point, but it ended up being more like 40 something, wasn't it? 40, 40, 43, 44. Was there any negotiation with the agency at all? There was no negotiation. There was no negotiation. There was no negotiation. Look, I think I'm not. I think the MO was that babies are born, make it pay extra. There's nothing you can do. You're, if you had, if I had two million at the point at that time, I would have handed it over just to get out of there with the babies. Yeah. Did it feel like to have this outstanding bill, this huge amount of money, and to know that you needed to raise it or you wouldn't get your girls? You go in and, and you, 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 you'd forget about it for an hour when you're when you're there in the hospital. But you come out feeling like, you know, you'd feel like shit. It was not, you'd, feel, you'd feel lost. You'd feel guilty as well. You're looking at them and then you, you come back out and you're thinking, what, what situation did I put you in? You know, the situation you're in right now. I'm blaming myself. My partner blamed himself. Do you know what I mean? But there's nothing you could do. There was, there was no other way out. Who did you turn to? We had no one to turn to. We had no one. We, we were ringing family and friends at home. We were telling them what's going on. You know, we were ringing journalists back here. We were ringing TV stations, radio stations. Did you consider contacting the police there to get them involved, to see if you could get any support from any government agency there to as, get these babies released? As one thing we should have researched a little more, the, the laws in Kenya, they, look, we knew that it's, it's not legal to be gay over there, but same-sex couples over there, they face, they face tremendous like, hardships. Like, you can be tagged for being gay in Kenya. So we, we'd spoken to lawyers and we'd spoken, and it wasn't a good idea to get the, to get the law over there involved as a same-sex couple. You know, that could affect those bringing our babies back from Kenya. So that wasn't something that we, that we, could, we could actually do. Even, even, even a lawyer, we went to a couple of lawyers and when they found out we were a same-sex couple, they refused to work with us, so. And what about getting support from the Irish authorities? Were they able to help you? At the beginning, we were told there was nothing really they could really do. Um, but look, it's obviously, it's a, it's a civil matter in a way. It's between you and, you know I mean? And it's, it's a different country, you know? They don't have the authority over there to really get involved. And we did feel a bit let down at the first time round. But I have to say, I'll hold my hands up to them. When we raised the money and went back in, they did whatever they could for us. They did, the, 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 the consulier over there, poor lady, she spent from eight o'clock in the morning until nearly one o'clock in the following morning, out with us, you know, trying to get things done, bringing us here, bringing us there, you know. They really, 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 really helped us solve, and I appreciate that. In terms of the agency that you used, I take it you did your research, you felt that they were legitimate. 100%, 100%. Look, we, 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 as I said, in, in the beginning when, when we started searching for surrogacy, there wasn't many places that did LGBT surrogacy. You know what I mean? Like places like Ukraine, Georgia and all these, they, they banned same-sex surrogacy. So um, we spoke to this guy for a while on the phone. We'd, we'd been constantly contacting him. We'd contacted another agency as well. But, there was something about him, he kept calling us all the time, he was really nice, really pleasant. And we just decided, you know what, let's go for it. So you decided with your partner that you would need to leave Kenya and come home without the girls to raise that money. How difficult 
was that decision? It was the hardest decision ever. It was the hardest decision we ever had to make. We cried ourselves. We cried ourselves on the whole way back on the plane. You know? But there was no other choice. We, we really, at this point, we thought we were going to lose them. You know, we thought, like, what happens if we don't get the money? We're going to lose them. And we both talked about it, and we made the decision that we, there's no choice. We had to go home. And we did. Look, we came home, and look, the Irish people really supported us. We, we, we got our babies home. They're here now. That's the proof. But uh, it was probably one of the hardest decisions we ever had to make. Were you confident when you left Nairobi that you would get back and that you would get your girls and be able to take them home? I was trying to tell myself that I would, but a part of me thought that, like, maybe, what happens if I don't? Like, and like, we were, you know, we were up and down, we were thinking we are going to lose them, we were thinking, you know what, we have to be positive, we'll, we'll get through this, and we did, you know. You came back to Ireland and you did raise the money. How yeah. long did that take and what did that feel like? I think we had the money raised within two weeks. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. You know, we felt like there was light at the end of the tunnel because we, we as I said, at one point we thought we were going to lose them. Yeah. I don't know what we would have did, what we would have done if, if we didn't raise the money. I don't know what would have happened. I mean, they would have been halfway around the world. Look, even even our lawyer told us when we had the money raised that look, lads, go in with a water, a water cash and get them out of there. That's all you can do. And we did that. There must have been a huge sense of relief when you got on that plane and knew that you were heading home with the girls back to Ireland. You know, landing in, landing in Dublin, it was the whole way back and the whole journey, like we, we flew from Nairobi to Frankfurt and then from Frankfurt back to Ireland. But actually, when the plane landed in Dublin, I, I bawled my eyes out, to be honest. I couldn't believe that I was home. I literally, I, I actually made myself a promise I'd never leave Ireland for a long time and, and I won't. But unfortunately, I know it hasn't been plain sailing, has it, since she came back here? Camilla, she's been in and out of hospital. We've, you know, it's, it's hard work, obviously, it's three kids, you know what I mean? But we've also had other incidents, stuff in our windows, and oh, look, people giving us bad on social media and stuff. We've, we've had a lot of negative videos, but look, we're, we're tough skin, we can, we're trying to get over it. Because you're here in this apartment with your partner and your children when that happened. Look, I'm, I'm scared that, look, first time round it's graffiti, but next time round it could be a, a brick to the window. Like we stand there with my baby in my arms. That's, that's what we're thinking. Uh, what is your advice now to other couples who are looking at surrogacy? Do more research. Do more research. Look, look, into, look into the country you're going to, look, look into all the laws, especially same-sex couples, but all couples who are doing surrogacy. Look at it. And also, look, I, I think the Irish government should change the laws in Ireland so that even just citizens can, can deal with it in the country legally because the framework is not there, you know what I mean? And it's not just for the couples either, it's for the babies. That was Edward O'Reilly there speaking to Kira Doherty. Well, Neve Smith, Louise O'Reilly and Daniel Murray are still here with me. And if anything, that report just highlights how perilous the whole surrogacy situation is for couples here who desperately want a family. But the, the, the commercial overseas surrogacy is just so problematic in many cases, like they saw the experience that that couple went through in Kenya, now safely home with their three babies, of course, but not without having to go through so much to get there. 
Yeah, and they're not, not the only ones who have gone through an experience like that, not the only Irish couple, not the only couple from anywhere in the world to, to have gone through an experience like that. And then also in some surrogacy cases as well, where there's been exploitation of the surrogate, certainly not talking about this case, um, and in cases even trafficking of, of children as well. So very complex ethical and legal area, but one that the Irish government is now endeavouring uh, to finally deal with. And I understand that a memo is going to cabinet very shortly, which is going to provide an entirely new section to the assisted human and reproduction yeah, bill. Tell, which us will... how, tell us how you think that legislation will change, say, the situation um, there for Edward and his family. Well, what will happen for all couples in Ireland looking to uh, pursue a commercial surrogacy abroad now is that they will have to go, to go to a newly established assisted human reproduction agency and that agency will have to pre-approve their surrogacy before they go and carry it out. And that will be approved on the basis of very high standards, medical standards, human rights standards, legal standards in, in countries. And I think many of the jurisdictions that currently facilitate commercial surrogacy, actually they won't meet those standards and couples won't be able to travel to them. Uh, it'll also put it financially out of reach for many people, I think, Louise, if there, I suppose these regulations are in place, yeah. it does mean that sort of outfits that are offering maybe cut price surrogacy and, and uh, you know, not everything, the system isn't isn't uh, up and running properly or certainly not, not in place um, adequately for, for families. But but it does it does make it even more difficult. It will it will change things. It does, um, and I think for some families, uh, you know, like people have been waiting on this legislation now for years, for so long. You know, we also have the issue of pe people whose legal status is still not determined, and that has to be dealt with as well. I mean, there are kids growing up who will find it difficult to get a, a passport, you know, mm -hmm. and, and even though they're here, they're in school here, but they, they will find that tough because their legal situation hasn't been clarified. I think that needs to be done along with yeah, this. That, but uh, there was a huge cross-party effort went into getting the uh, getting the committee oh, together and, and the report, etc. All right, we are out of time, but I, I know it's something, Neve, that you welcome as well. Um, we'll have to leave it there. I'm afraid that's it for most. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight, VMT. Uh, but from all the late team here, good night. Do take care.